right, well, good morning, church. All right, I think we can do a little bit better than that. Good morning, church. There we go. Good to know that everyone is awake this morning. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This morning I get the privilege of continuing to walk us through our sermon series in the book of John. Last week, Jared walked us through John 16, and so this morning I get the privilege of going through John 17. Um, Like Jared said, my name is Andrew McDaniel. I'm currently serving as a church planting resident here with the hope of being sent out in a couple of years to plant church. So um, yeah, just fully transparent. I was a little nervous coming up here this morning, Um, but the Lord is good. And like Jared said, uh, my words do not have final authority, but only the Lord's do. And so uh, just bear with me, pray with me as we walk through John chapter 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words should be on the screen back here behind me. So John chapter 17, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they might be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. If 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you, ha- which, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. O Holy Father, you are good. God, your word is perfect. It's true. Jesus says that the word of God is truth. So Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would use your word to build up your people, to sanctify them in truth. God, my words mean absolutely nothing apart from you. God, I can't craft an argument that will force someone to believe in the good news of Jesus. I can do nothing on my own. Holy Spirit, it is only you who can convict of sin through the word of God and push us to trust in the finished work of salvation on the cross of Christ. So Jesus, we love you. I pray this morning that you would build up your church. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, now that's a lot. Like, I'll just be honest with you. John 17 is a lot, and there is a lot going on here. Um, it's really easy to miss the forest for the trees. It's really easy to get snagged up on a lot of the theological nuances that are going on here in, in John chapter 17. I was joking with Jared the other day that he could have given me any, like, silver platter t-ball text to preach from for my first sermon, like, could have given me, like, a John 3.16, or, you know, maybe, like, a, give, like, a resurrection text or something like that. Uh, but he gives me the entirety of John chapter 17 and says, good luck. Um, all that to say, I'm excited to be in the pulpit this morning, brother, and I'm excited to be before you this morning, church. And I say all of these things, joking around that there's a lot going on here in John chapter 17, to, to let you guys know that we're not going to be able to unpack everything that's going on here in John 17. You could realistically spend weeks in this text, and I've got about 40 minutes, so we're going to do the best that we can to, to, to unpack what Jesus is saying here. So everything that we're going to be talked about can essentially be couched in this one statement. This is the, the sermon and the sentence, if you will. The main point of the sermon this morning is going to be this. Jesus intercedes for us in prayer so that we can join him and the Father in glory. Jesus intercedes for us in prayer so that we can join him and the Father in glory. Now, before we can get to the meat of what's going on here in John chapter 17, we have to build a little bit of a contextual background to figure out how we got here in the first place. So if you've been kind of tracking with us as we've been walking through the book of John, you might have heard us say uh, week in and week out that you know, the first 12 chapters of John are, are essentially like a 30,000-foot view of Jesus' ministry. We get this, this roughly three-year span in 12 chapters, in the first 12 chapters, of John's gospel. But when you get to chapter 13, John uses an interesting literary device here. He essentially narrows his focus in, he slows down time, and he records uh, this one night, this one event that we often call uh, the Last Supper discourse for roughly four to five chapters. And so in chapters 13 through 16, we get Jesus and the disciples having this one-on-one discussion. You have Jesus addressing his disciples, they talk back to him, and they're having 
this discourse for four chapters. But when we arrive to John chapter 17, Jesus' audience, it shifts. We're still in this same night. We're still at this, this, uh, this Last Supper discourse. But Jesus goes from addressing his disciples one-on-one to addressing the Father. And it's this, this beautiful uh, conversation that Jesus has with the Father while the disciples are all sitting around still listening. Jesus essentially gives us a behind-the-scenes look of the way in which the Son and the Father interact with one another. And so here was the last night that Jesus was going to be spending with his disciples. Uh, his disciples gathered around him, listening intently, and Jesus addressing the Father on behalf of the disciples. So this morning, I want to walk us through three things that Jesus prays for those who follow him. And then I want to close by looking at how those three prayers allow us to join Jesus and the Father in glory. So, point number one this morning, Jesus prays that we would be kept. Jesus prays that we would be kept. Now, I feel like there's a a question that is in order here at this point. You see, if you think back to John chapter 17, Jesus mentions that it was the Father who gave him his people. And more so, everything that was the Father's was Jesus's, and everything that was Jesus's was the Father's. So the question has to be asked, why did Jesus pray that the disciples would be kept? It's an, it's an interesting thought there, because if, if everything that Jesus had was the Father's, including his people, why would Jesus need to pray that they would be kept? And if you think about this question, it really gets to the thrust of why Jesus came to earth in the first place. To put all my cards on the table early this morning, Jesus came to reconcile sinners back to the Father. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 that he had accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. And not only that he had accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do, he says that he kept his people in his name while he was on earth. You see, this, this, Jesus praying that the disciples... Uh, would be kept. It, it, he didn't pray this because you know there was a blind spot with Jesus about to leave. He knew his people would be kept. Think back to the context of this passage again. Jesus knew that that this was the last night that he would have with his disciples before he was uh, betrayed, before he was arrested, before he was put on trial, and before he was eventually killed. And Jesus knew that because all of these things were about to happen, he knew that his disciples would be alone. They would be confused, and they would be scared for their own lives. And therein lies the reason why Jesus asked the Father to keep the disciples. Remember, this prayer is not one that Jesus is like way off in the garden by himself with no one around. The disciples were sitting around him as he is addressing the Father. They were present and they were listening. And so, you see, church, Jesus was not worried about like, some of the disciples slipping through the cracks once he had uh, died and after he had uh, ascended into heaven. Jesus prayed that the disciples would be kept so that they would be comforted, so that they would be reassured, so that they would have his joy fulfilled in themselves. Look back at verse 11 with me. In verse 11, Jesus says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that what? they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. What gives you joy? Where do you find joy this morning? When I ask that question, I don't necessarily mean, like, how do you fill your time? Like, what do you do with your downtime? Which, that could be a litmus test for how you determine what gives you joy. But when I ask this question, I'm thinking more along the lines of, like, when the bottom falls out of your life, when everything around you feels like it's crashing down, what do you turn to for joy? Do you lean on a spouse? Do you lean on your children to pick you up? Do you turn to the bottom of a bottle to get you through long weeks? You may even be a workaholic, and maybe you, you devote yourself fully, double down on your job, because that is where you find comfort and joy and satisfaction. Friends, understand this morning that Jesus doesn't want you to white-knuckle your own way into your own joy. He doesn't, he doesn't call you to muster up your own strength in and of yourself so that you can be satisfied. He prays that you would have His joy made complete and fulfilled in yourselves. What a beautiful and powerful prayer this is from King Jesus. Jesus did not pray that after He had died and after He had risen and ascended into heaven, He did not pray that the disciples would hold uh, influential worldly office. He did, not, he did not pray that they would seek power and hold worldly authority. He didn't pray that they would become wealthy and have a lot of money to their name. He simply prayed that their joy would be found and made complete in and of himself. Matthew Henry, who was a 16th and 17th century pastor and theologian, uh, he commented on verse 11 saying this, The prosperity of the soul is the best prosperity. Friends, in a culture and in a city that is constantly pushing you uh, and telling you that your job is your identity, that money is your God, and that power is something to be sought after and chased. Friends, my prayer for you this morning is the same prayer that Jesus asks the Father in verse 13. My prayer for you is that your joy would be that of Jesus and that his joy would be enough to satisfy your weary soul this morning. But we can't only ask ourselves the question, why are we kept? Without also asking ourselves, what are we kept from? Who are we kept from? Jesus answers this question for us in verse 15. If you look back in verse 15 with me, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You might have heard this phrase thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot, but this is where we get the phrase, in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. You see, followers of Jesus should not be taken out of the world once we are saved because uh, we have been tasked or commissioned uh, with taking the gospel to those who desperately need it. So as we come to faith in Christ, we can't be taken out of the world. But we also can't look like the world around us. And that's an important understanding this morning. Have you ever been in a situation where you stuck out like a sore thumb? I don't know if I'm the only one who makes myself look like a dummy sometimes, but my wife can probably attest to this. But uh, <laughs> uh, there have been many times where I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb. And one in particular is the summer before my senior year of college, uh, my old roommate and I, we went on this mission trip to Argentina. And in this mission trip, you have to keep in mind, we didn't go with a team. Like it was, we didn't go with like a large group of college students from our church it was just us two. Like, we literally went down there on a vision trip to meet with an IMB missionary, and it was just 
two 21-year-old kids flying out of Chattanooga, Tennessee to go to a culture in a city that we had nothing, uh, we had no knowledge about and we had no idea what was going on. And so we fly into Buenos Aires, Argentina, and we get there, we get in our Airbnb, we settle in, and we're like, we're hungry, it's been a long day of flying, we're going to go get dinner. And we go get dinner uh, at the normal time that we would typically get dinner back in Chattanooga, 6 p.m. If you know anything about Hispanic culture or you've ever been to Argentina or anything like that, you know that dinner rarely, if ever, starts before 8 p.m., and so here we are, we're just like bebopping along down the streets of Arge- in Argentina on a Saturday night in a very populated area, and there's like tumbleweeds rolling around around. Like there is, there's no one out here, and we go to this, this little empanada restaurant, and there's one cook and one person running the register, and that's it. We're the only people in this restaurant. And it became very obvious to the people in the restaurant as well as the very few people we saw uh, walking down the street, that we were not from Argentina. We weren't in Kansas anymore. And, and I say all of this to say that this is exactly how Christians should be in a watching world. It should be apparent to those around you that you are a disciple of Jesus. To those who are closest to you, if they can't tell that you are a disciple of Jesus, that should be a major red flag. Jesus knew. That like a sheep, or like, like sheep led into the den of wolves, the disciples would be sent out into the world to carry out the good news that Jesus had given them. Church, understand this morning that the bid to follow Jesus was never promised to be an easy one. The bid that Jesus gives us to follow him was never meant to be easy. Meant to be filled with joy, yes. Easy, never promised. Peter makes this abundantly clear in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Church, the bid to follow Jesus is a bid to come and die. The bid to follow Jesus is the bid to pick up your cross, die to yourself daily, and follow Him. But rest assured, if the God of the universe is praying that you would be kept for the fulfillment of your joy and be kept from the evil one, then you can rest knowing that it will come to pass. Point number two this morning. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. So not only does Jesus pray that we would be kept, he also prays that we would be sanctified. Notice the progression in verse 17. We can't miss this. Jesus asked that they would not only be kept from evil, but that they would also be made holy. Therefore, Jesus asks the Father to sanctify or to make holy or to set aside those who follow Him. But before we can define like, what sanctification actually is, we have to first understand, and, and we cannot miss this point, we have to first understand that sanctification cannot and will not happen outside of the saving work of Jesus. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were like Paul doesn't say we were like struggling along in our trespasses and sins. We weren't limping in our trespasses and sins. We were dead, dead, dead in the ground, six feet under, dead. Our souls were nothing before Christ, but dead. Imagine if you went to a funeral 
this morning. And, and you were sitting there, and as the pastor was giving the eulogy, all of a sudden the person that was in the casket threw open the lid and climbed out and started walking around. It'd be pretty weird, right? I'd be getting out of that, that uh, funeral home really, really quickly. Because dead things can't bring themselves back to life. Dead things cannot and will not ever give themselves life. What this means is this. Apart from Jesus' saving work on the cross, you cannot and will not ever do anything that will be enough to give your dead soul new life. What can a dead man do? This is exactly why we need Jesus. Who, who Don't miss this. In John 17, Jesus says He has authority over all flesh. This is why we need Jesus to come in and do a miracle on our souls. To regenerate our dead souls. To breathe new life into our dead souls. Friends, understand this morning that Jesus doesn't just come in and like dust off your dead corpse and pat you on the back and send you on your way. He reaches into the depths of hell and pulls your dead soul from the pits and breathes new life into you. This is why sanctification cannot happen outside of the work of Christ. Trying to be sanctified in Christ without first having Christ is, is foolish. It's behavior modification at best. And behavior modification has never gotten anyone before Christ, while Christ was on earth, and after Christ. Behavior modification has never gotten anyone into the kingdom of God. Practically, that means that, friends, if you have not been saved, if your soul has not been washed by the blood of Jesus, that means that if you show up at church on every Sunday, but you haven't been washed by the blood of Jesus you will not get into heaven. If you've been baptized, if you've, well, if you've been dunked in water, not baptized, but if you've been dunked in water before you've been uh, saved in Christ, you just went swimming, you're not saved. That will not get you into heaven. Attending a small group or tithing on Sundays will not be enough to get you into heaven, no matter how hard you try. Only Jesus, the one who took your place, who took my place on the cross. Only He can truly save you. So church, if you haven't trusted in that this morning, trust that Jesus is the one who can save. It may feel like I'm going on a lengthy tangent here. It may feel like I'm, like you might be like, okay, obviously I know, yeah, yada, yada, yada. But it's an important understanding because there are so many in the church today who have been t attending for years who may have even been baptized, who may be tithing, who, who are fully involved in a small group, but they haven't been saved by the blood of Jesus. And so it's so important to know that no matter how hard you try to sanctify yourself, it cannot happen outside of Jesus. So now that we know that sanctification can't happen outside of the work of Christ, we can actually define what sanctification or how sanctification actually happens. Look back at verse 17 with me. Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Verse 17 gives us a crystal clear picture of how sanctification happens. Sanctification happens by the truth of the word of God shining a beacon of light onto our sinfulness and brokenness. 
Sanctification happens by the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to convict us of, of sin and brokenness. And sanctification happens by us turning from that sinfulness and turning from that brokenness, which ultimately shapes us more into the image of Jesus. I love the song that Carrie and the worship team sang earlier because it's a beautiful picture of sanctification. To turn from sin, to turn from brokenness, to turn from unrighteousness and unholiness is to look more like Jesus. Sanctification is a a beautiful thing. It's incredible to me that to think that God would even save me in the first place, to breathe new life into my dead soul, is wild in and of itself. But not only that, God doesn't stop there. The fact that He would not only give me new life, justify me before a perfect and just God, He also wants me to look more like Jesus. He desires for me to be made holy. He desires for me to be made righteous. It's a wild thought, but church, understand this this morning. Sanctification is a lifelong process. It takes a lifetime to be sanctified. It takes time and it takes effort. You will never accidentally stumble into holiness. You'll never trip and fall into righteousness. You won't wake up one morning just beaming with holiness. Sanctification is it, it's costly. It's going to cost you time for, for one thing. It might cost you relationships. It might cost you friendships. And you can rest assured that, that God will reveal sin in your life. And I don't know about you, but like my sinful pride doesn't like having sin revealed. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't feel good when I am confronted with the perfect sanctifying Word of God and it reveals my sinfulness. You can rest assured knowing that the Lord is shaping you and molding you to look more like Jesus and less like the world. Paul tells the Philippian church that the one, and the one is Jesus, so the, the one who started a good work in them will see it to completion. That same promise is true today. If you have been washed by the blood of Jesus, the one who has started a good work in you will see it to completion. Before I move on to, to point three, I want to leave you with, with just a few very practical application points for how one can grow in sanctification. First, they're super easy. I'll just go ahead and preface it. They're super super practical, super easy. They're not like, I'm not going to show you anything that you've probably never heard before, but it's good to be reminded of practical things every now and then. First, read the Word of God. Read the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Friends, the Word of God is the very thing that reveals God to us. Like, we will never be able to, to, to understand God, learn more about God, to grow more into the image of Christ without reading the Bible. It won't happen on its own. So, friends, if you want to grow in sanctification, like, baseline, read the Bible. Second, pray the Word of God. Read the Bible, pray the Word of God. I found that this is something that like, I, I, I've just started doing recently, but I found that some of the sweetest times in prayer, while also times that I've, I've grown more in my understanding of the Word of God, has been times when I've just prayed the Word back to God. Like, if, you, if you're confused as to what to pray back to God, like, what, 
what word to pray back to God, go to the Psalms. The Psalms are like David's prayer journal, essentially. Like, pick a Psalm. And, and what's great about the Psalms is you can essentially, like, if you wake up and you're feeling frustrated, there's one in there about frustration. If you wake up and you're feeling like, man, I just feel holy and righteous this morning, there's one about praise and worship in there. I promise you, if you read through the Psalms and you pray the Psalms back to God, it will sanctify your soul. So read the Word of God, pray the Word of God, and lastly, memorize the Word of God. I've, I've, I've put all my cards on the table for you guys this morning already, and I'm not going to stop now. I'm terrible at memorizing the Word of God. This is something I struggle with deeply. And I admire those who have memorized large chunks or even books of the Bible. Oftentimes, I, I use the excuse of, you know, well, I just I don't have time to memorize Scripture or... Like, my memory is just not that good anymore. I'm not even that old. But I, like, make the excuse that, like, my memory is just not as good as it used to be. And if I'm being fully honest with myself, and, and I'm sure some of you probably use the same excuses, they're just that. They're excuses. And if you boil it down to why we don't memorize the Scriptures and why I don't memorize the Word of God, it's because I'm lazy. Friends, memorize Scripture, not because I'm telling you to, because this is the blind leading the blind up here, but memorize Scripture because it will be monumental for your sanctification. You hold me accountable, I hold you accountable. We'll, we'll go from there. Point number three. Jesus prays that we would be united. So we've seen that Jesus has prayed for the disciples to be kept. We've seen that Jesus has prayed uh, for the disciples to be sanctified. And now we see that Jesus is praying that we would be united. And asking for unity uh, with the Father, he asks for it in a twofold manner. The first, he asks the, the first thing he asks the Father is that he would keep the disciples united amongst one another, that he would keep his people united together. But it's important, though, that we understand exactly who Jesus is praying for yeah. to keep united. Look back at verse 9 with me. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus points out here that he's not praying for the world. He makes it crystal clear that he is only praying for those whom the Father has already given him. And this them that Jesus uses in, uh, in this passage is both the disciples that were present with Jesus at the time, as well as us today. It's, it's not necessarily just the disciples it's the entirety of God's people. Now, for some of you, the idea that Jesus is praying for a particular people, or more commonly referred to as the elect, uh, the, the idea of Jesus praying for the elect, uh, it causes your ears to perk up. And you're like, you got your Westminster Catechism back here, and you're about to slap it on the table and, and defend the five points of Calvinism. For others thought of Jesus praying for a particular people or praying for the elect causes you to kind of cringe in your seat. makes you feel weird. makes you feel icky. Regardless of what side of the aisle you stand on, the fact that Jesus does in fact pray for a particular people should bring you more comfort than it does questions. You see, the world at large is constantly trying to divide people into different worldly categories. If you are a disciple of Jesus this morning, rest and know that there are no factions in the kingdom of God. Galatians 2.6 tells us that God shows no partiality. So what this means is this. If you are white or you're black or you are Hispanic or you're Asian, 
God shows no partiality. Whether you live in a beautiful renovated row house in Capitol Hill or whether you live on the street corner, God shows no partiality. Whether you work at the Pentagon or whether you work for a, a, con, a nice contracting company or whether you're like me and you whip up lattes on Saturdays at the coffee shop, God shows no partiality. In the kingdom of God, there are only those who have been washed by the blood of Christ and those who haven't. We are all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Therefore, Jesus is praying that his people would be united together. This means that we as the church, as God's people, as God's elect, we cannot let small disagreements turn into larger divisions. One very practical example of this today is the way in which the church handles the COVID-19 pandemic. Whether you think that the virus is something that like desperately needs to be taken seriously, or whether you're someone who just thinks it's overplayed and that we shouldn't worry about it, we cannot let something like this be what divides church member from church member. A wise man once told me, uh, we can't sweat the petty things, and we can't pet the sweaty things. Can't sweat the petty things and don't pet the sweaty things. Therefore, church, don't let something as trivial as a mask be what causes you to stumble and sin against your brother or your sister in the faith. Whether you love masks or whether you hate masks makes no difference to me, but the way that you treat your brother and sister in the faith does matter. And it makes a difference, church. This is why Jesus asks the Father to keep the disciples united as perfectly one. Perfectly one. The world is watching how the church responds to each other. And Jesus makes it clear in this passage that it will be through the perfect unity of His people that the world will know that Jesus was sent from the Father and that the Father loved His people as He loves Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just stop there, though. He not only prays that the disciples would be united amongst other believers or that God's people would be united as one, He also prays that we would be united with Him and the Father. Look back at verse 21 with me. Jesus asks the Father that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus makes a beautiful theological implication here that I wish we had more time to flesh out. Unfortunately, we don't. But Henry Alford, uh, who was a 19th century pastor and theologian, he commented on verse 21 saying this, quote, It is not merely the similarity of their unity to that of the Son and the Father, but the actuality of its subsistence in Christ abiding in them, in Christ abiding with the Father. What Alfred is saying here is that our unity with God, if you've been washed by the blood of Jesus, our unity with God is not just like similar to that of, of, of the Holy Trinity. It's the same. The way that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all perfectly united is the same way that if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, that's the same way that you are united with God. This unity is made possible by what is often referred to as the imputed righteousness of Jesus. The imputed righteousness of Jesus. If, you ever, if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, like, put on the robes of righteousness, that is what the imputed righteousness of Jesus is. What, the, what this doctrine simply means is that once we are saved by grace through faith, Jesus then imputes or he gives us his righteousness, which then justifies us before God. And it is through this righteousness then 
that makes it possible for us to be perfectly united with God while also being perfectly united as the body of Christ, striving together to carry out the perfect will of God here on earth until Christ returns. So I want to close with this. Carrie and the worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. I want to close with this this morning. Church, I hope you understand that if the God of the universe is praying that you would be kept, you can rest assured knowing that you will be kept. If the God of heaven is praying that you would be sanctified in the truth of the word of God, then you can know in certainty that you will indeed be sanctified in the truth. And if Jesus Christ, the one who has authority over all flesh, is praying that we as the body of Christ would be united as fellow believers while also being united with God, then trust that this will be the case. Friends, this prayer may have been prayed some 2,000 odd years ago, but if you're someone who has surrendered your life to Jesus this morning, then you can take heart because the God of the universe right now is at the right hand of the Father petitioning these same prayers on your behalf this morning. So let me close this in prayer. Jesus, you are good. Your word is like honey. It's sweet. God, I am thankful for your word this morning. God, I pray that your church would be sanctified in truth. God, because your word is truth. Jesus, I'm thankful for this opportunity to be in the pulpit this morning. God, I'm thankful for a church that desires to, to, to raise up new uh, leaders and to send people out, God. And Lord, ultimately, I'm thankful for the cross. God, what the world thought would, would silence the king only made him that much more glorious. God, that that this morning we can trust that if we have, have been bought by the blood of Jesus, then we are right now being prayed for that we would be kept, that we would be sanctified, and that we would be united. So Jesus, I love you. I'm thankful for you. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen.